please turn with me to Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 to 21. You can read along on page 8 in your bulletin. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated four hundred years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Kadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. We've been saying that the Bible is not just a collection of stories teaching us morals on how to live a good life, but it's a single story. What's wrong with the world? God is active in the world, and how the story is going to end. And we've been looking at the book of Genesis the last three weeks, particularly at the life of Abraham. His name was Abram, changed to Abraham. Abraham was called out of his social, economic, his career, right? Um, his, his cultural and religious context. God appeared to him and promised him that one day a son born of you, one of your descendants, will come and heal all the brokenness of the world. And four times God appears before Abraham. Four times throughout the courses of chapters 12 to 25, in a pivotal way. I mean, God's walking with Abraham, and, there, and there's constant communication. But four times, there is a, a pivotal interchange. Chapter 12, God says, Abram, I want you to leave your country. I want you to leave your household. I want you to leave your family. Leave your people. Chapter 13, he says, Abram, I'm going to give you all this land. You know, he says, I'm gonna, I want you to leave. Abram says, to where? God says, trust me. I'm going to give you all this land. Abram says, what land? God says, trust me. Genesis 17, 
God says, I'm going to give you a son. Abram says, I am 99 years old. How? God says, trust me. Genesis chapter 22, God says, I want you to offer your son as a sacrifice. Abram says, why? God says, trust me. Each time, there is a tremendous challenge with the spiritual experience that Abram has with, the God, with God. And each time, Abram triumphs. Each time, he, he succeeds. There's adversity, and he doesn't fail. He actually crosses the bridge. He trusts, and he succeeds. He triumphs. He lived a big life. He lived a huge life. Circumstances didn't master Abram. And, and the question here is, how do you live a big life? How do we live big lives? The Bible's answer, you're not going to like it, you're going to groan. The Bible's answer is, you need to have faith. You need to trust. In each of these cases, Abram trusted God. He didn't just trust in the Lord. He didn't just trust in the words of the Lord. He trusted the Lord. He trusted his promises. How do we live a big life? This passage is going to teach us how to live a big life. How to trust. It's one of the most wonderful powerful, I think, passages in the Old Testament, perhaps in the whole Bible. It's probably not very well known, but it's extremely powerful, extremely comforting, extremely reassuring. And there's two main points. First point is the doubts, Abram's doubts, verses 1 to 8. And then the second part, the second, I guess, half, verses 9 to 21, teaches us God's response to Abram's doubts. So the first half, we see doubts, in the latter, latter half, we see God's response to our doubts. And that we're going to learn through that what it means to be assured, what it means to have faith. First, the doubts. One chapter prior to this, chapter 14, Abram rescues his nephew. If you, remember, if you were here last week, Lot chose to go down towards Sodom because uh, the land couldn't support both Abram and Sodom and all the, all the wealth that they were accumulating. And so Lot goes into Sodom, and Abram actually has to rescue him. In rescuing his nephew, he was actually disturbing the peace that rested. There were lots of tribal chieftains and nomadic tribes there, and it was creating a lot of instability politically. And Abram's nervous. And what does God say? God says, Abram, do not be afraid. I am your shield. I am your very great reward, he says. Now, there are two problems with living with that kind of confidence, with living a big life. And we see it here in this text. God says, Abram, I am your shield. I am your great reward. But Abram responds, verse 2. I'm going to read verse 2. He says, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. In other words, what he's saying is, I know you're sure. I know you know. But how can I know that you're going to be good for it? How can I know that you're going to pull through? How can I know? What assurance can you give me to make me sure about you? I'm not sure about you. Abram's got doubts. Abram's got anxieties. He's got questions. And, and this doubt is tied to, how do I know at the end of the day that you're going to pull through for me? How can I hook? How can I anchor into this promise? That's the first problem that we have with trusting God. Now, God responds. He responds with assurance, comfort. He reminds Abram. He actually takes Abram. They're, in, they're at night. He looks out into the stars and he says, count the stars if you can indeed count them. That's going to be the number of your descendants. God makes a covenant with Abram. He's reminding him of the promise that he made to Abram. What's a covenant? A covenant is a life-binding, love-binding agreement that two parties make with each other. 
And it says in verse 6, Abram believed God. He trusted God. And God credited to him his righteousness, meaning that uh, Abram didn't have you know, the, the, the bank to support whatever trust that he had, but God actually gave it to him. God credited to him his righteousness. He put his righteousness on Abram and enabled him to trust. Now, verse 7, God reminds Abram of the covenant again. This time he says, I'm going to give you all this land. I'm going to give you land. Land and a son, the two major currencies of the ancient world. And this is very realistic. Abram starts to doubt again. A couple verses before, Abram trusts. He says, Abram believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now two verses later. The second big problem that we have with living a confident life, trusting God, verse 8. Abram says, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? The first time we have, how do I know that you're good for it? But this time around, you have this agreement. Abram says, how do I know if I can pull through? How do I know if I can gain possession of this? How do I know if I can keep my end of the bargain? How can I anchor into this? The two big problems. I'm not sure if you're going to pull through for me. But more scary, I'm not sure if I can pull through for you. I'm not sure if I can pull through for you. I'm not sure if I can live up to this agreement. What do you see here? God is open to doubts. He's reasoning with us. He's assuring us. God shows up and he says, I am the Lord. Here are the things that I promise. Abram has the audacity to question the sovereign God over the universe. He says, I'm doubting. I'm just doubting. I'm not sure. And, you know, God could have said, you know, how dare you? Do you know who I am? Who are you? I could squash you right now, but that's not what he says. On one hand, he hears our doubts. And on the other hand, he wants to address. He wants to address the fact that we doubt. He wants us to get out of our doubts. He wants us to grow out of our doubts. On one hand, he hears us, but on the other hand, he challenges us to work out our doubts. On one hand, you have the tremendous freedom to question. You have freedom to doubt. But on the other hand, you have freedom to work it out. To work it out. God wants you to work it out because there's freedom to do that. The church needs to be a place where people can come with tremendous questions and doubts that they have about God. Today, people are unable to open up about their doubts. They're afraid to talk about their doubts. But at the same time, on top of that, we live in a society, we live in a culture where it's it's considered sophisticated to have doubts. It's considered sophisticated to actually question Question your leaders and question, uh, you know, things like religion and faith. So if you don't doubt, you actually look naive. So we have this traditional culture that says, you know, you can't doubt. Don't doubt. Don't have doubts. It's wrong to have doubts. And then you have the secular culture that says you should doubt because if you don't doubt, you know, you're naive. And they both create doubters. They both perpetuate doubting. Here, God says, it's safe to doubt but you need to work it out. I want to challenge you to work it out. He wants you to address it. Remember in the New Testament, doubting Thomas? Jesus appears in front of the disciples, and Thomas wasn't there at the initial appearance. So he says, I don't believe. Unless I see and unless I touch, I will not believe. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't just show up and say, you're a fool for what you are thinking. That's not what he does. He says, Thomas, you see me. Come and touch. 
On one hand, you have tremendous freedom to doubt. There's gentleness there. But on the other hand, he says, I want you to work it out. Come, you see me. Come, touch me. That's how you'll know. He wants you to work it out. That's the first point. Quick point. What is God's response to our doubts? This is the second point. He responds with tremendous assurance. What does God do? How does he actually respond to this? Abram says, I don't really know about you, but on top of that, I don't even know about me. I have doubts about myself. And God says, Abram, I want you to take these animals. And, you know, he he actually lays out the types of animals that he wants, each three years old. And the text here says, Abram gets the animals and immediately knows what to do. He doesn't wait for further instructions. He knows exactly what God wants him to do. He takes these animals. He cuts them in half. He cuts them in half from head to toe. He doesn't cut them across the belly. From head to toe, he splits them in two. And he arranges them opposite each other. He knows exactly what God wants him to do. And uh, he, what he's doing is he's creating this aisle, an aisle that you can walk through. God tells Abram exactly what to do. He, Abram's part of a merchant culture. He's part of an economically merchant culture. It's not an agrarian society where Abram grew up in. He was actually part of a merchant society where contracts and negotiations were very natural in his society, in his culture. And in doing that, what he's doing is he's cutting these animals in half. And uh, we're not very familiar with this. You know, we don't really know what's going on. But what Abram and God are doing, they're entering into a contract. They're entering into a covenant. This is what you call a covenant ratification ceremony. Today in our literate culture, when you make a deal, when you make a contract, when you purchase a home, when you buy a car, any type of contract, you actually write things down. And uh, you know, the way you hold each other accountable is, is what? You sign on the dotted line, and that means that now society will hold you responsible. Society will hold you accountable to everything that's stipulated in the contract. And you're held accountable to that. You're held accountable to the degree that if you fail to obey the contract, there will be consequences. And the consequences are laid out in the contract. Take marriage, for instance. When you get married, what happens is um, the two parties that are getting married entering into the contract. It's a love-binding, life-binding agreement. That's what a covenant is. They sign on the dotted line. And then the witnesses come and sign on the dotted line. I sign on the dotted line. And this covenant then becomes sealed. And what you're saying there is that we're making big promises and we're binding our lives to it. If we break our word, there'll be tremendous consequences. But in a pre-literate culture, you didn't write these contracts out. You didn't sign. There's no dotted line. You spoke the contract and then you acted out the consequences. George Mendenhall, he's a former professor the University of Michigan. He was actually a professor emeritus, 35 years. Um, he's an expert in Near Eastern ancient contracts. And he wrote an important book. He wrote The Law and the Covenant in Israel and the Ancient Near East. And what he saw basically in gen- passages like Genesis 15, what he saw here was that passages like Genesis 15 or Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, was written almost exactly the way a contract in the ancient Near East would be written. And what he's saying is you're seeing similar language. This is covenantal language. And that's what you're seeing here in Genesis 15. These things were spoken. They were acted out. You spoke a contract. You acted out the consequences. Each contract has a preamble, a beginning, uh, a prologue. You introduce the parties. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur, the Chaldeans. That's what he says. And then you have the stipulations, the promises. 
These are the things that I'm going to promise to give you, Abram. And then to act it out, what you did was you walked in between these pieces, the pieces that were laid out opposite each other, because in doing that, what you're saying is if I don't live up to the terms of the contract, may I become like the animals that I'm walking through in between. May I be cut to pieces. May I be torn asunder. May I be cut off. That's covenantal language. Let this happen to me if I don't obey. Whenever you had a king, a high king, entering into a contract with a lower king, a lesser person, somebody that he appoints as a, as a vassal, the king would set up the contract. He would say, I want you to cut these animals, lay it out in the exact way that Abram had laid it out. And what would happen is the lesser king would walk in between the pieces. He would walk down the aisle. And mainly what he's saying is, you know, the high king doesn't have to uphold anything. He sits and he watches and he makes sure that you are going to promise to uphold and obey his laws. And if you obey his laws, you're going to be blessed. And if you don't obey the laws, may these things happen to you. May you be cut apart. May you be torn apart, torn asunder, cut off. So this is all covenantal language. The king would never actually walk through in between the pieces himself, the high king that is. Now, if that were the case, Abram, he's cutting these pieces, he's laying them aside. What do you think he's thinking? God is the high king, he's the lesser king, so I know what God's doing, he's making me lay out these pieces. He wants me to walk through, make the promise. Why? Because Abram's got doubts. I don't know about you, and I don't know about me. This is how we deal with sin. This is how we naturally deal with people who wrong us. Mainly what we say is, you failed me, so I want you to promise that you will not fail me again. Because if you do, you're going to get my wrath, you're going to get hell, you're going to pay, you're going to experience the full extent of my wrath. This wouldn't have helped Abram at all. This would have killed Abram. He's wondering, how is this going to help me? Because right now, I'm doubting like crazy. Making this kind of covenant is going to lead him actually only to obey in fear, and we know that's not going to last very long. Because he, couldn't, he didn't know if he could trust God himself. But what happens here is probably one of the most amazing things that we could ever see and know about God. One of the most amazing things that we could ever see and read about in the Old Testament or the entire Bible, for that matter. The sun sets. Abram is falling into a deep sleep. It's not a normal sleep. He's falling into a very, very deep sleep, it says. And actually what it says is that a dreadful darkness comes over Abram. So what's happening is literally a thick terror comes over Abram. So along with the physical darkness, a dramatic terror comes over, comes upon Abram. And you can imagine this thick smoke Abram can't breathe. Remember, imagine this room filled with smoke. You drop to the ground. Abram is now dropping to the ground. And a terror has come over him. Throws him to the ground spiritually. He's struggling with God. He's struggling with himself. He's struggling with doubt. He's alone and he's doubting and he's wrestling and he's struggling. And what's happened? God's response. God's response to Abram's doubt is this thick terror that comes over him. Such a terror that he's not in a normal state. The smoking fire pot all of a sudden appears. And a blazing torch. It says, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch passes through the pieces. Now, commentators, they have a difficult time translating what's going on here. Most of the commentators, uh, well, actually all the commentators acknowledge that there's a billowing smoke, smoking fire pot, 
and a blazing lightning. But this is the part that's really hard to translate. What they're saying here is that we understand it to be a smoke and a lightning. You know, a billowing smoke and lightning. But, you know, when you think about lightning, it comes and goes. This lightning, this is the part that's difficult to translate, is a lightning that strikes and stays. That's what Abram's seeing. The terror has come over him. And in the terror, he sees this billowing smoke and this lightning that strikes and stays, and that lightning is moving through the pieces. Abram knows what's going on. This blazing torch, this continuing torch, you know, these are the tokens and the emblems of God's immediate presence, his physical presence, the smoke and the blaze. Incidentally, these are the two words that you see on Mount Sinai when God is handing the law down to Moses. You see this thick smoke and this blazing torch. God has now appeared before Abram. The pillar of God's presence is before Abram. It's real, and it's painful, and it's awful, awful. If you've ever read the autobiography of Malcolm X, Malcolm X, in his spiritual journey, describes his first meeting with the leader. That would be kind of like a cultic leader of the nation of Islam. And this is what he says. He says, my worship of him was so awesome that he was the first man whom I have ever feared. Not fear such as of a man with a gun, but the fear such as one, the fear such as one has of the power of the sun. He says it's awful. That's the Latin root. This awful dread. Not like you're afraid of being mugged, but the awe that you have towards the sun. This amazing experience. And Abram knew that God wasn't just reiterating his promise because God is speaking to Abram as he's walking through these pieces. He knows that God isn't just reiterating a promise. Now he's making an oath. And he's tying his life into that oath. He's tying everything that he is, God's own identity, into that oath as he speaks to him. And what God is saying here is, if I don't live up to this oath, may I be torn asunder. May I be cut to pieces. May I experience hell and wrath. May I be completely cut off. This is absolutely amazing if you see this. For several reasons, it's amazing. Number one, in ancient contracts, the king never walks through. The king would never walk through the pieces. Only the lesser party would walk through. But here God, the sovereign king over the universe, appears before Abram. Abram's the doubter. Abram's the failure here. Abram's the one that's questioning. He's filled and he's struggling. And yet, God's the one that's walking through. He's the one that's promising. He's the one that's assuring. And inherently, what God is saying is this. If I don't bless you the way I promised I would bless you, everything about me is going to change. May my immortality become mortal. May my infiniteness become finite. May my immutability, my unchangeability, now become mutable, now become changeable. May I be cut off. May I be torn asunder. May I die. It blows away the first problem we have with living a big life. How can I trust that you're going to be good for it? God has tied his identity and his life into the promise. But the second part is actually equally amazing, if not more. That's not all that happens. God actually passes through, right? He makes the oath and he passes through. That's verse 17. God makes the covenant. Verse 18, covenant's complete. It's over. He just finishes it off and says, these are the lands that you're going to get. It's not just amazing that God makes a covenant with Abraham and actually he's the one that passes through the pieces. He's the only one that passes through. 
Abram never walks in between the pieces. And this blows away the second big problem that we have, the second major reason that we doubt, the second big problem that we have of living a large life, because it's amazing who walks through and who doesn't walk through. God is the only one who walks through. God is the one who ties himself into the promise. In other words, what he's saying is, if I don't live up to the promise, may I be cursed, may I be cut off. But what he's saying is, if you don't pull through, may I be cursed, may I be cut off. Abram, if you fail, I'm going to be the one that's going to be cut off for you. I'm going to be the one that's going to absorb all the risk. I'm going to absorb not only... I'm going to be the one responsible for giving you the blessing. I'm going to absorb all the risk alone. God is saying, even if it means I'm going to bless you, lest I be torn to pieces, I will pay the penalty if I'm not faithful to the promise. But also, I'm going to pay the penalty if you're not faithful to the promise. Your faithfulness has nothing to do with the blessing. It doesn't rest on you. It's not dependent on you. You didn't earn it. You didn't, you didn't attain it. You didn't acquire it on your own. In other words, what he's saying is, you are blessed no matter what unconditional love faith is to trust that God had finished the work God has finished it he finished it with his word and he tied his he tied to his word his life his identity now Abram is perplexed he's got full assurance he's probably perplexed you know, even when we listen to that, we're like, how is that possible? How is that possible? It sounds incredibly amazing, incredibly reassuring, but how? Because if what he's saying is, Abram, I'm just going to ignore your unfaithfulness. That's not just. That is not just of God. God would be actually mutable. God would be changing qualities about himself. He must have been perplexed, but you know, we don't have to be perplexed because God, in walking through the pieces alone, what he's doing is he's saying, I'm going to preserve your descendants by sacrificing my own. I'm going to preserve your livelihood, your descendants, because I'm going to sacrifice my own descendants. Centuries later, in Mark chapter 15, Jesus is on the cross. Darkness comes over the land. And what's happening here? Jesus is experiencing the terror. The terror. And, you know, Abraham, he experiences the terror because of the presence of God. But Jesus on the cross says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I'm experiencing terror because of the absence of God. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 8. It's a prophecy about the Messiah, the Savior, the person who's going to come to redeem the world. It says he will be cut off from the land of the living. He'll be cut off. That's covenantal language. He's going to be cut off. He's going to be cursed. If you put it all together on the cross, Jesus experienced the terror, God's wrath. He experienced hell. He experienced the wrath of God. He was torn asunder. He was cut up. He was torn apart. Jesus lived a perfect life. There was not one human counterpart who lived a perfect life the way Jesus obeyed. In other words, he was the greater Abram. He was the greater Abraham. He fulfilled God's covenant promise completely to the full. That's why Abram didn't have to walk in between the pieces. But because God walked through, Jesus would obey. Because God walked through, it means I will obey. Jesus will obey fully God's commands. But on the cross, you see him suffering. You see him enduring wrath. The wrath that we deserved. 
because of our unfaithfulness. On the cross, you see the physical darkness, the physical terror, meet with the spiritual darkness, the spiritual terror. And Jesus suffered it alone. The wrath of God for our unfaithfulness. This is the reason why, again, Abram didn't have to walk through the pieces. When Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's going on? The immortal is becoming mortal. The infinite is becoming finite. Jesus is saying, now the immutable is becoming mutable. I'm dying. I'm sacrificing my life. I've been cut off from the land of the living. My body, now my soul, is being torn apart. I'm being torn to shreds, torn to pieces, and my heart is being ripped apart. And yet he says, it is finished. The covenant is complete. You can take me at my word. My heart is being torn apart. Why? So that your heart can be big. My life is being torn apart. Why? So that you can live a big life. I'm experiencing hell. I'm experiencing wrath. Why? So you can get heaven. You can be blessed. Jesus suffered the terror alone so that we can be in God's presence forever. That's reassuring. That's the promise. The Son of God experienced all this so that why? We can experience the blessing unconditionally so God's promise will always be with you so that you can be blessed even if you fail him. Galatians chapter 3 Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 to 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that's us, through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. What difference does this make? Several implications, very quickly. First, every other religion says, do this and you're going to be saved. Christianity blows all that out of the water. Christianity is not a religion. Why? Because religion is us working our way to God. Christianity says, God has done it. It is finished. Trust that you will be saved. Trust it. Just rest in that. Gives you tremendous freedom in our doubts. Next, all of our sins, all of our wrongdoings, you know, uh, they exist because we don't trust. Everything that we do wrong, everything that we do bad, is really a result of us not trusting in God's promises. Think about it this way. If you're bitter, you're not trusting in his justice. If you're worried, you're not trusting in his wisdom. If you're angry, you know, you're not trusting that God will fulfill, God is vengeful for us. If you're guilty, if you're living in your guilt, what we're saying is we're not trusting in God's love, we're not trusting in his grace. If you're, if you're unforgiving, you don't trust in his mercy. If you're greedy, you don't trust in his provision. All of our sins, all of our wrongdoing, all of our spiritual pathologies, it comes because we don't trust in God's promises. Next, we can go to God with our doubts. Why? Because he hears us, He wants us to work it out. The commentator, Derek Kidner, he says, we can say to God, how am I to know? It's kind of like, I think I believe, God. Will you help me in my unbelief? We can do that. We have the freedom to work that out. And lastly, when we have doubts, when we have assurance, I'm going to read from, you can see it in your, uh, the word of encouragement, actually, um, Hebrews chapter 6. 
In Hebrews chapter 6, I'm going to read a little bit more than what we have written in the word of encouragement. Verse 13, when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abram received what was promised. Verse 18, God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope, God's promises, demonstrated by Christ on the cross. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. We have it firm and secure. It's an anchor for our soul. Everybody needs an anchor. If I, you know, what's an anchor? An anchor is, if I have this thing, then I'm safe. No matter what the storm, I am safe. That's what we're saying when we say we have something as an anchor. Hebrews says Christ is our only anchor. It's our anchor. It's not based on what you can gain, what you, how you perform, but it's based on Jesus' performance. It's not based on your record. It's based on Christ's record. It's not based on what you've done. It's based on what Christ has finished. Every other place is crumbling. Every other anchor falls short. You know what an anchor does, right? You, you haul out the anchor, you throw out the anchor, and it reaches deep, deep beneath the water until it grabs onto something and holds tight. So either something could be wrong with the hook or it's not going deep enough. Every other anchor... The hooks aren't strong enough to hold or it's not going deep enough. Your salary, your reputation, your looks, your figure, your health, your family, your lover, your pedigree, these are all shallow anchors at best. Shallow at best. You think they reach deep. They're actually shallow at best. But God, at the least, what he's done and who he is, He says, I am your shield. I am your very great reward. Anchor into my character. Anchor into me. You're not going to drift away. You're not going to sink. You're not going to waver in the storm. That's what gives us confidence to live a big life. That's what gives us power to live a big life. There's no guilt. There's no pressure. There's no suffering in that. If you don't hook into anything other than the work of Christ, the person of Christ, you're going to ebb and flow with the tide. You're going to ebb and flow with the tide. I'm going to read from you a very famous passage from, from Malcolm Muggeridge. Um, he's a British journalist, one of the most famous British journalists um, probably in, in British history. We look back upon history and what do we see? Empires rising and falling, revolutions and counter-revolutions, wealth accumulated and wealth dispersed. Shakespeare has written of the rise and fall of great ones that ebb and flow with the moon. I look back upon my fellow countrymen, once upon a time dominating a quarter of the world, most of them convinced in the words of what is still a popular song, that the God who made them mighty shall make them mightier yet. I've heard a crazed, cracked Austrian announce to the world the establishment of a Reich that would last a thousand years. I've seen an Italian clown say he was going to stop and restart the calendar with his own ascension to power. I've heard a murderous Georgian brigand in the Kremlin, acclaimed by the intellectual elite of the world as being wiser than Solomon, more humane than Marcus Aurelius, more enlightened than Ashoka. I've seen America, wealthier and in terms of military weaponry, more powerful than the rest of the world put together, so that had the American people so desired, they could have outdone a Caesar or an Alexander in the range and scale of their conquests. All in one lifetime. All in one lifetime. 
all gone, gone with the wind. England, now a part of a tiny island off the coast of Europe, threatened with dismemberment and even bankruptcy. Hitler and Mussolini dead, remembered only in infamy. Stalin, a forbidden name in the regime he helped found and dominate for some three decades. America, haunted by fears of running out of those precious fluids that keep their motorways roaring and the smog settling with troubled memories of a disastrous campaign in Vietnam and the victories of the Don Quixotes of the media as they charged the windmills of Watergate. All in one lifetime, all in one lifetime, all gone, gone with the wind. Behind the debris of these solemn supermen and self-styled imperial diplomatists, diplomatists, there stands the gigantic figure of one, because of whom, by whom, in whom, and through whom alone mankind may still have peace, the person of Jesus Christ. Will you hook into him today? Will you hook into him this week? Will you anchor your soul and your spirit into the promises of God in a way that it would change your life, that it would give you confidence to live a big life this week? Will you do that? We have the blessing and the access. Even as we sing to respond, we can say, Lord, I am renewing my covenant with you because you've walked. You've walked the aisle. You've been faithful. Let's pray.